Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of Coffee Chats with Ryan. Apologies for the delay between episode five and episode six. Uh, there is a scheduling conflict that popped up, and anyone that knows me knows that I'm already pretty terrible with my schedule and planning and calendar as is. So any kind of minor hiccup that comes along just completely throws me out of whack. I'm going to try to get better at it in the future. Um, I'm working actually on a couple people to come on the podcast, one of which can hopefully help everybody take care of their hair better and offer some other grooming tips. And another person to help me understand the marijuana and cannabis industry and marijuana and cannabis itself uh, as the last time I've really had any experience in that area um, was when I was in university. My guest this week is a good friend of mine and a PhD candidate researching feminist science studies, which is a branch of science, technology, and societal studies. Uh, He explains what all that means and more. He goes into what his thesis is, um, and he talks about that, and it definitely made me smarter listening to him explain uh, what he's researching currently at the moment and kind of the broader implications of it. He helped create a lecture series called Empowering Others. Uh, He's a fellow thespian although he's actually performed as part of an actual production, a couple different productions that, uh, that we talk about. I took a class in university, and I think I'm an actor now. So check him out on his Instagram, at Ty D. Anders, and follow, follow along with his acting rise. So without further ado, here's the always interesting Tyler Anderson. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm glad that we finally managed to get this done. Uh, what are you drinking today? Ooh, I am making the terrible mistake of having a coffee at 20 to 4 in the afternoon. It is a delicious medium roast, uh, PC Colombian. Pick it up from shoppers. It's uh, yeah, it keeps me going. It's my gasoline. Man, I feel you, coffee. Uh, I don't know how you're doing it after 4 o'clock. That's, that's a Friday, Saturday thing for me if I'm going to have coffee uh-huh. after... After I just want to sleep. Really, yeah. yeah. I just want to sleep, and I'll hate, I'll hate myself, and then I'll just do it all again the next day. You get all your PhD stuff done, though, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I try. No, for sure, for sure. But it, you just need it. Like it. Yeah. You you need that second wind, and even though it's a little artificial, or sometimes it does bite you in the ass when you can't go to bed at like midnight, or you're just wide awake at two a.m. I find it still. I don't know. I need it. I do need it. What about you? I don't know. What are you drinking? I was going to say, I have a orange vanilla flavored sparkling water from Farm Boy, and it's organic Ooh. with zero sugar. Um, what, makes, what makes organic water? I don't know. I think it's what you put in it, but right. it's got the organic label. I mean, technically, all water is organic, right? You think. That was like my brother was shopping at the LCBO, and he saw a wine labeled organic or vegan. It was vegan. Right. Vegan wine, and he's like, I genuinely have no idea what I've been drinking for the past couple of years now. Um, it's like, well, he's like, what makes the wine vegan? Like, what's in the like other wine? The skin flakes off people's feet as they're like stomping the grapes <laughs> to create to create the liquid. I know that's so gross. I, I think so. We, we did look into it, and I think it depends. You can strain. So I guess when you have to strain the wine to get all the grape mash out, um, mm. you can use, I guess, like a charcoal filter, and that would make it a vegan wine rather than using i guess traditionally they use like skin i guess okay Okay. for the filter or cheese cloth protein yeah yeah dang dang well that sounds Um, good hydrating yeah definitely hydrating we we picked one of the the orange vanilla ones up like the the singles we didn't want to commit to a full 12 pack without knowing if it was good turns out it was really good so it's fantastic it tastes like it tastes like a cream skull 
So I'd really recommend anybody out there. I'm a huge Farm Boy fanboy. Mm-hmm. That kind of sounds weird. But it tastes like a creamsicle, and uh, and I love it. But that and their hummus is to die for. Oh, my God. And their salad bar. Like, sometimes you can really just stock up. Sometimes it's it seems pricey, but... Often my neighbor, it's delicious. Uh, it's a nice lunch. my neighbor will shoot me a text on like Saturday morning. And he's like, Hey, I'm going to do groceries, stopping at farm boy on the way home. Do you want me, do you want me to pick you up anything for breakfast? And I'm like, Oh man, like, no, because I'm going to get, it's like $5 for the greasiest food ever. And I'm right. trying to be healthy right, right now. Yeah. And I'm making my how you, pancakes. Yeah. How do you find that? Like cooking your motivation to cook food during the pandemic? Like, have you found your relationship has gotten better or are you finding like, oh, I have to think of another freaking meal to put together tonight. Like, Oh my God, why does my body need food? Like, what is <laughs> we, we've got like our standards that we go to. Like we have, uh, there's an Anthony Bourdain mac and cheese recipe that we tend to have. Like I'm going to say monthly cause it's not that regular. Cause it's a, the cheeses you have to get for it are ridiculously expensive and you don't feel good after eating it. You feel good eating it at the time. Um, yeah. but we have like our standard recipes. Like we've got a, uh, a peanut stir fry, like a peanut, um, peanut butter stir fry that we make with veggies, you know, a typical veggie stir fry. We do vegan tacos. Um, nice. we tend to eat more vegetarian and vegan throughout the week with like a couple meat meals sprinkled in. Um, hmm. sometimes we'll just roast a chicken on like a Tuesday. So we've got leftover chicken to have on our lunches. Um, nice. God damn. But, so you really commit to it for sure. And really plan it out. Yeah, when it, when it first started, I don't know if you found this, when we first started the pandemic, we were eating out a lot more than we normally yes. would. And it was just yes. because we didn't want to cook. Um, and because we we're totally dead. supporting local too, right? Nice. Um, yeah. But we committed more to cooking and, uh, you know, cooking, at least for me, it's kind of like meditation where you can kind of block everything else in the world out, just kind of focus mm-hmm. on not cutting off your fingers. Um, totally. And it takes you different places. So we'll make like a Japanese curry and it takes us back to being in Japan when we had it. Or um, we'll do like a, a, what's it called? A cheese spread. And it'll remind us yeah. of, uh, of going to Europe and kind of gets us out of our, of our four walls. Oh, that's so sweet. I love that. And it's true. Like <laughs> just the process of being in the kitchen, when you start moving away from recipes and getting creative as well, like it does turn mm-hmm. into, it's really like this art form. Like it's, it's exciting to get the burn. My, the worst thing of it all is I sound like very cliche, but the dishes, like it's so depressing to like have to punish yourself after yeah. what you like, you cook for two hours, you eat for 20 minutes and then you have to like get through this mountain of grease and grime and like, ugh. ugh. Yeah. But <laughs> the yeah, worst is part of, part of it. The worst is doing a crock pot. So we'll put the crock pot on for like all day mm-hmm. doing beef stew or something like that. And then no matter what you do after you're done cooking the beef stew and you take it out of the pot, there's always gunk caked to the inside of the crock pot. And it's like 20, 30 minutes of just scrubbing it and scrubbing it and scrubbing it and scalding hot water and taking off some skin of your hands. Yep. I find like, alternatively, I'll just do, oh, this needs a soak. And then it'll just sit there for <laughs> an unreasonable amount yeah. of time. Yeah, exactly. It's like, is this safe to wash? Oh, God. Like, there's a ecosystem that's now developed inside my pot. <laughs> And then you can't you can't get rid of it because you want to keep that ecosystem alive. You don't want to destroy the planet. Exactly. My God, exactly. We so have tell, to live symbiotically. Yeah. <laughs> tell me a little bit about your background and what led you to getting your PhD because you're a PhD candidate, correct? That is correct. Yeah, there's uh, we can talk about it like I guess later the distinctions, but a candidate is supposed to separate you from just a student. You kind of reach this moment where you've qualified yourself as an expert in your field and then you've been examined on it. Like your proposal was accepted, your reading list was accepted, and then you had 
like four instructors and professors who've been in the field for a while, just grilling you, testing your expertise, like testing the feasibility of your project. So when you do like attain that candidate title, you're like, yeah, I'm a candidate <laughs> now. <laughs> like you really have, no, I, I try not to be so elitist about it, but yeah. Um, so what was life like before doing the PhD or the lead? So, oh God. Um, <laughs> I actually, I know we were talking about like Superstore for a little bit before. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you've watched like so many episodes, but there's this one, and no, not too many spoilers here, but like Dina is having a bit of PTSD because of like an extreme weather event that hit the store like a couple months prior. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the episode, she's just like talking to Amy and Amy's like doing her best to be that shoulder for her. And then Dina's like, okay, well now we got to grade 10 and this is where things get really bad. <laughs> so it's like, where do you start, right? When you reflect that. Um, but no, so I, my undergrad was in legal studies. So I thought I was maybe gonna be a lawyer um, the BA itself is actually called law, which is a bit of a misnomer because it's definitely like the sociology of law and the more, yeah, sociality and relations-based approach to it than like the hard stuff. There was like labor law, constitutional law, um, <laughs> risk in the legal process was, of course, I was like, eh, oh my God, it was supposed <laughs> to be what it felt like to be in law school. And like, I remember the exam, there were three questions, it was open book. And one of them was just like, we need you to craft an insurance policy where um, it would, you know, address da 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 in the event a natural disaster like struck this nation island. And it's like, what? It was so odd. The knowledge you were expected to have versus what we actually had was so disconnected. So anyway, I'm kind of running on, but like my background was in uh, legal studies. Um, I was, before I ended up going to grad school, I was like, studying for the LSATs and other things I guess were happening at the same time. I was finishing my degree um, and I was really falling in love with like theory and these really interesting questions and ways of looking at kind of social life and society and how we order that in ways that I never thought before. So like that was starting to, I don't know, pull my interests. And then I remember my parents were like very graciously and generously like took me to New Orleans at the end of my uh, undergrad as a congratulations, like well done for getting it done. Um, and I remember like, it was incredible, like one of the best things I've ever done. But like two days in, I remember kind of like breaking down saying, guys, I don't want to go to law school. And they were just like, okay, like it's fine. But you make it up to be this whole like, oh my God, um, they're going to be so disappointed. You know, what do you do? What's the life course? So anyway, when I talked to them, I also had in mind, like, okay, I think grad school might be a good option. Um, and that was because of like, again, my interest in, I don't know, like I was taking this uh, course in fourth year called like drugs, the user and the state. And he introduced us to this theory, like the names don't really matter, but like, this guy, Louis Althusser, who was this neo-Marxist who talked about capitalism and like how it's not just about reproducing the means of production, but you also have to buy into it. You have to ideologically kind of get captured into this. And so he's looking at the family, culture, the school, religion, how all these institutions sort of hail us as capitalist figures. And like, I didn't really understand it at the time. Like the professor was relating that to the matrix. Like it was so weird. Um, I was learning about like gender performance and all this other stuff. So anyway, like that really captured my, I'm kind of really running on here. That was really like exciting to me. Mm -hmm. So then, um, 
when law school was just obviously not an option, it's like, yeah, okay. Um, not because I knew I necessarily wanted to be an academic, but similar to the vein of law school, it's like, this could potentially open doors for me or I'll figure it out. Um, but since being here, like, yeah, a lot of those questions have been answered and things have fallen into place, which is nice, but yeah. So, I mean, I didn't answer that well at all, but yeah, you, but did. you, did. you took us on the journey. Um, and don't worry about rambling. We've got plenty, plenty of time. But yeah, you took us on the journey of how you kind of got into pretty much right about to do your PhD. Like, well, not right about to do your PhD, but I guess why you decided to go to, to grad school. Um, mm -hmm. So my question is typically for me, I always thought that you had to get your master's before getting your PhD. Yes. Yeah. That is the uh, the usual trajectory. So I actually did start, I applied to an MA program at Queens. Um, and that's what I started as in 2016, was just like an MA student. Um, but after the first few months there, based on my relationship with my supervisor and kind of the work that I was already producing, I got selected for promotion. Hmm. So they bumped me into the PhD program, um, which was like, at the time like oh my god this is so exciting this is so amazing it is a double-edged sword like for them they have reason to do it because i don't know there's more funding opportunity as a phd student over an ma there's more prestige or tache you could potentially bring to the departments versus if you were an ma so it's like it's a very popular practice in the states very popular across the sciences and like the stem fields um but yeah no i was one of the few who got promoted and like it felt good. It definitely had its problems. Don't get me wrong. I was super green getting into my MA, like having no idea how this world worked. And then to be thrown into the even deeper end was like, oh God, yeah. I'm in over my head. But um, yeah, that, that is the usual trajectory. But yeah, sometimes sometimes it could be a little different. So you leveled up. Uh, and you're getting your PhD in feminist science studies, right? Yes. Yes. Can yes, you yes. Like, break that down to me on like an easy to digest level? Because, like I said, I, I did a bachelor yes. in commerce. It's all numbers. It's all uh, quote unquote <laughs> science about stuff. Um, you know, totally. HR and accounting really has a yes or no answer. So I'm, I'm that's a whole new world to me that I don't know of. Yeah, a hundred percent. So, like, very my general PhD specifically, the the degree will say sociology because that's the department I'm in. But all of us have more like specific fields, a little more specific research areas. Some people studies, some people it's like just gender, sex, sexuality. Um, I sort of staked my claim in feminist science studies, and I guess you can kind of break that up in like to two. So the science studies question is like a greater program of study in science and technology studies that really looks at how, I guess the ultimate lesson is like, it's not just in the use and abuse of science where we see like bias and cultural entanglements, but it's at its core, it's in its, it's in its inception. Um, so you have like fascinating questions around like, you know, how Newtonian dynamics organize scientific inquiry around this model of causal thinking and causal reasoning where, you know, Isaac Newton and like having a Newtonian synthesis um, where gravity very well explained um, sort of the, uh, the motion of things. And he decided that, um, you know, you can be with this equation, with this thinking, no matter what you look at, you can say, if I apply X amount of force on Y object, it'll move here, it'll go there, it'll take this much time. And then you can go backwards in time and reproduce the same thing. And that sort of informed a lot of other sort of knowledge practices, but like an STS scholar might look at 
you know, quantum field theory and quantum mechanics and thermodynamics and how those actually revealed um, how the calibrations of reality, like the activity of the little bits of life, like electrons and atoms and these things are actually more chaotic, more indeterminate, and what that might mean for our larger, you know, questions. So that's kind of like, I don't know, that's maybe an annoying example. Another way to look at it is like the question of the body. So science studies will understand that the body is as much as like this discrete fleshy thing that we have, it's also a historical referent. So if we think about anatomical depictions in particular, um, you might think about like in the Renaissance with Da Vinci, with his anatomical depictions, like the body looked very soulful. It was a very spiritual thing versus, you know, the industrial turn. Um, you look at anatomical depictions that are very much focused on like joints and mechanics and how things are cogs and work together. So it understands how culture informs the scientific enterprise as much as science is just you know this like pure objective practice and then like the feminist question for me is very simply like it's that one that has to understand how power operates and they're like very much attuned to those intersections of questions where like race gender class sexuality all very much play a part in like who gets to be the civil man of science and how these ideas even take shape in the first place. And so understanding power relations and having a historical critical perspective with your approach to sort of techno science and science and technology um, establishes that field. And like, it's a very rich area and it's not all that new. Like STS is probably, I don't know, as a burgeoning field come about like in the last 40 or odd years there was a science wars in the 90s but um it's not all that uncommon i guess science wars yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you have a lot of these like these scientists versus these like postmodernists questioning like we basically had well nothing is real everything exists in language everything is contestable um everything is produced in discourses and so meaning can be played with and like there's truth to that and so scientists who work with you know the scientific method and reproducibility and consistency and in their view pure objectivity they're laughing they're like you guys are stupid like of course there's reality of course there's determinant ways of thinking and it created like real big questions about how do we look at life? How do we look at the body? How do we theorize matter? How do we theorize agency in a way that respects, you know, the, the principles of science, but also the profound findings in the humanities? And like, it's this area that just fascinates me. Like, I don't know, there's so many different STS stories and case studies where like, one I just read was every version of steel that we have right now has some form of radiation that's coming off of it because um, post-World War II, after we released nuclear bombs, uh, cobalt-60 got released into the atmosphere. And how we make steel is by um, capturing oxygen in the atmosphere as a way to, I don't know actually the specifics of it, but it's a part of the, the process. But in the atmosphere now, there's this cobalt-60 that doesn't exist in nature that always gets infused in that process. So like when scientists or NASA have to find, or even doctors um, have to find uh, steel for these devices, like, I don't know, um, uh, 
god, what's it called? Like heart beaters? That's not the term. Pacemakers. Oh my goodness, that sounds so silly. Yeah. Pacemakers. Thank you very much. My goodness, heart beaters. <laughs> oh my god, I could be so childish. Um, they have to literally like go. They have to salvage what's called pre World War II steel. So they have to like literally go in the waters and get that stuff because it would otherwise interfere with either the measurements they're trying to take like the functioning of that device it's crazy like and so for me that those little cases like show so richly how culture and science like and even objects are complex and rich with stories i guess i guess is like sort of just the point there okay so i don't know if that helps if that makes that more confusing less confusing i'm not sure but it's kind of like you're looking at the intersection of uh like you said humanities and science so where you know, all the philosophy and all that clashes with the science kind of thing? It, it, totally. So like Karen Barad, one of my favorite authors, in one of her more recent lectures, she looks at Operation Crossroads, which was like uh, right after World War II, 46, 47, where the U.S. participated in like really intense, um, that's an understatement, like nuclear testing. They detonated multiple bombs. Um, and her point is essentially that logic, like what crafted the bomb, where the bomb came from is very much married to the nuclear arms race, to the scientists who were invited during the world wars to craft literal nuclear physics. And so her point is like, it's not just in the droppings of those bombs where we see, you know, the huge, like, the darkness of humanity, for example, but it's in the theoretical equations where we see logics of like militarism and imperialism and capitalism as well. Like it's not just in how we've done it, it's, in, it's at its core, it's at its heart. So like understanding those complexities then to an STS scholar like offers different avenues like to explore, you know. Um, yeah, where the role, where goodies like feelings, consciousness, intentionality are not just like within the domain of the human. Like the idea is really to live to, or move toward uh, a symbiotic understanding of things. It's really understanding that like as a researcher, you can never be separate from the things that you view, right? You're a measurer yourself with your own presumptions and assumptions and biases, and that has to be part of the picture. So it's really about our place in the world, understanding the very complex web of life as something we have an effect on, and obviously that affects us, and trying to talk about it in a way that moves people, I guess, to action and like to politics and all these sorts of things. So it's very like, it's very philosophical, it's very theoretical, um, but it, it's, it's necessarily so. Like it's trying to craft tools and concepts that again, like hold complexity and hold, um, the messiness of life in a meaningful way that doesn't flatten it or reduce it or, um, uh, you know, eschew other realities in favor of other. And that's kind of vague, like we can get to more specific stuff, but yeah, I don't know if that helps either. I'm, I sometimes, yeah, I guess you don't listen to yourself a lot <laughs> how clear things are coming. No, about. that's okay. Uh, like I said, take the time to explain it because a, a half an hour explanation that gets the point across is better than a five second clip on YouTube or TikTok, I guess, totally. if you want to have uh, other governments looking in on you. Um, so did you want to talk briefly about your dissertation? Because you, you tried to explain it to me earlier, and uh, I think that's going to be something you're going to have to kind of uh, deep a deeper dive onto. Yeah, 100%. So like my dissertation specifically, I give it a quick little log line, like you're very much encouraged 
to think about like an elevator pitch when you're doing the actual work, like your supervisor's telling you, like, you have to think about how you're going to talk about this. You have to think about how you're going to advertise it or like, you know, converse with a room, da, 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 da. So the log line that I give is like, my dissertation is about uh, blood donation in a time of extinction. So there's like two separate things we can look at. And for me, like that time of extinction bit is supposed to hold this urgency the sort of immediateness of now and it's not you know figurative or metaphorical like quite literally um this epoch is being described as a time of mass extinction and it's being named the anthropocene which anthro meaning human as a mass extinction precipitated by human behavior then other people will be annoying they're like no actually it's the capitalist scene because it's only in the last 200 years and like that kind of erases other humans who are living well before this da, 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 da. so like the time of extinction bit is supposed to it addresses urban decline it addresses ecological collapse not in this doom and gloom way like i'm trying really hard to step away from that because it's so easy to like wallow and then turn to these effects of despair and like be unproductive. I'm trying to highlight this time to show this urgency, but as in an aspirational way that we can do more, you know, we can change, we can be better. And then I'm talking about blood because for me, blood is this very rich reference and material that talks about, like I was talking about earlier, how complexity exists in practice because blood has so many different meanings and so many different scenes like there's blood and bdsm practices where like bloodletting is a thing and it's then like the materiality of blood that's contributing to that scene it's like it's the color of it it's its warmth it's the way it drips then in another scene if you see like blood on somebody's wrists you're freaking horrified or it's terrifying or you're thinking about death you're thinking about mortality there's blood like in a slaughterhouse that, you know, we that's necessarily sort of kept from view, I think, in our general day to day. And so for me, blood speaks very richly about this philosophical conundrum about how things become enacted, how things become constructed. And the ultimate lesson here is by talking about blood a certain way, relating it relating it to you know how we understand objects in general will speak to these other problems that we're seeing in this time of extinction so basically like the project uses this document called the creever report which was this judicial 1200 page thing that was the public record for what happened during the tainted blood tragedy which was like late 80s early 90s thousands of people contracted hiv and hepatitis c through a tainted blood transfusion and this document was just saying like, okay, what happened here? What are the matter of facts? And how can we move toward a safer blood supply? And I'm using this document to, to sort of look at how we become enacted as people, how the assumptions of blood, how the assumptions of humanity sort of become enlivened through this approach, how it's bad and what we might be able to move toward. So like, it's, it's another theoretical piece. The audience is fellow critical theorists. It's really a move. Um, it's like an agenda setting thing. It's like we need to look at things a certain way. We need to talk about things a certain way. Um, but yeah, very plainly, it's about blood donation <laughs> in a time of extinction. Um, yeah, which is, there's a lot. And I'm going to say this right now. You are probably way smarter than I ever uh, will aspire to be. But um, 
that's some deep thinking. So, so blood donation in, in a time of extinction. So you're, man, I don't even know where to start with that. That's quite the, uh, no, it's, it's, it's complicated. Like I know it's very, it's rich and it's, it's supposed to be because my claim is like complexity is the order of the day. Like life is complex and things are nuanced and contrary and messy. But like, I do believe that we can hold that reality and talk about it productively. So like the blood question, it's supposed to scratch at the split. Like, so science studies hates this divide that we put between nature and culture. It's like, we tend to maybe in our thinking and our imaginary see nature and culture as quite separate. But the ultimate lesson is like, no, these things are intertwined. Blood will scratch at these lessons of like, what is inside of us? What is outside of us? Where do our bodies end and our environments begin? And then what are the consequences for that? So like, I'm supposed to, using this thinking that we're talking about, I want to show how life is like, is complex like that. And in that way, there's a lot of potential for politics and coalition. And like, that's the ultimate point of like, this is supposed to be a move toward a better way of doing things, or at least aspirationally so. Like, it sounds arrogant for sure in principle, but it has to be. Like, you have to be staking a claim. You have to be taking a perspective. That's kind of the part of it. And it's not to say, like, the, there's no, like, Ryan, also, you are very smart. Like, you are 100% smart. You see it, you listen to it, you're so engaging. But, like, this stuff is just about, like, literal labor, hours of How do you attack that? It's it, you, not gracefully and not in a linear way. Like what I thought I was doing originally in my PhD is not what I'm doing now. But like you sit with these ideas that like going back to sort of the life path when I was doing my undergrad degree, um, when I first discovered Judith Butler, who famously talks about like gender and gender performativity and this idea that like gender is done, it's an, act, it's an action that has consequences. Um, I remember reading her first text and like not getting it at all. Like I would pour over one page would take me 20 minutes and then I would finally fly through six or so, not remember anything I just read and then have to take an hour to go back. And like, it's just this, it's labor and it's like, it's facing the uncomfortable ideas. It's trying to understand them. But once you do, I think really like, the philosophical accomplishment, like the critical thinking that comes from it is just understanding how things are made up and made real. And not to say that things are fake, that's not the lesson at all, but how things are contingent and relational. And I think once you have that, all these other things sort of make sense. You realize that, oh, this is just a way of talking about something. Like it's not necessarily better or worse, but it's just, it's different. It's a perspective and you really have to do a lot of work to move away from like moralizing because I find like that's one of the biggest hurdles. It's like, is this truer? Is this truer? Is this good? Is this bad? Like, yes, you need principles and yes, this stuff has effects, but like you, you have to kind of like shake this idea that there's perfect ways of thinking about stuff. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it takes, it's a lot of work. Like I, I, I don't know <laughs> if I can identify a moment where it just sort of flipped. It's good work, you know, like, and it's not, to, it's not just related to uh, people who do graduate school. Like if you read books, if you're in a book club, like if you're challenged, if you're educating yourself, right, it doesn't have to just exist in these spaces. Um, then you're also doing that kind of work. Like, I, I, I don't know. I think that's an important distinction. It's like this type of learning is not unique to mm -hmm. doing a PhD. 
but the type of time that it takes to do that stuff is not necessarily available, you know, in people's leisure time either. Like there is a, yeah, that's why it's a profession, I guess. That's why it's a, something you train for. It's why it's something you have to work Yeah, I definitely can relate to reading a book, going through a page for 20 minutes, flying through the next couple and having to go back. I read uh, Nicholas Taleb's Black Swan. Took me a while to get through, and his yeah. um, Anti-Fragile was a book that took me like six months to get mm. through. It's not that thick, but it's just you have to go back and reread things and reread things till it sticks. But um, but don't you find that does like th there's a change in you or something sits with you and like it's for better or worse it's something I don't know. Like, yeah, it's books are such portals into into you can live a thousand lives through a out. book you can like i've, I've mentioned on previous podcasts yes. uh, meditations by marcus aurelius was his diary uh, essentially his journal two thousand years ago mm -hmm. he was the emperor of rome he was the philosopher king and uh, a very very good man who proves that power does not corrupt um, you know absolute power corrupts absolutely he's the antithesis of that mm -hmm. but uh, you can go back and you can you can essentially talk to these people from two thousand years ago, from three hundred years ago, um, from exactly. twenty years ago, from somebody on the other side of the world who might not speak the same language as you, and get translated. And you, if all that brain power is available, you might as well use it, right? That's it. But more than that, too. Well, a hundred percent. But I also find like it's such a powerful tool for realizing, like, oh shit, like other people have been dealing with these questions too. Like other people have existentially been thinking about shit people have been talking about power and all this stuff and like seeing that is very refreshing because then you don't feel alone or you don't feel like you're the only one who sees it in fact it's sort of humbling you're like oh shit i come from a long tradition of people who are trying to make sense of it who are trying to make mm -hmm. you know yeah trying to see the picture yeah, well, i love it sometimes <laughs> i hate it don't get me wrong like the pandemic too well, has affected my relationship through even yeah, no, no, sorry, but even the pandemic, you think that, oh man, this is like a once in a ever thing. And you think, but you're like, well, no, people went through it in 1918 with the Spanish flu. People went through it in the 1960s, I want to say. There was the Hong Kong flu, I think, came out. Um, before that, there was pandemics all the time. You know, you had the, the Black Plague. You, Look at it. Yes, HIV. HIV and AIDS, was... which was really recent. Mm -hmm. um, but it's that friggin' bird flu. Was it H1N1? And the first SARS, yep. yeah, high nine, <laughs> like swine. Yeah, it's not the first time that we've gone childhood. through it. It's not going to be the yeah. last. Um, people have done it before. Well, this is, yeah. Well, the thing, like, not to be doom and gloom. That's what I'm trying to move away from. But a very important lesson in, with these scholars and like doing science studies is seeing, hey, like they've been saying this stuff for decades. But there will be pandemics of increasing severity and crises of like increasing orders of magnitude so long as we continue to kind of down this path and like yeah it's it's really nice to see again that retrospect of like oh this guy's always been falling <laughs> or everyone always thinks it kind of has been but at the same time like there i don't know there's immediateness there is a a specificity i think to this current moment especially when we think of like even just phones and technology and what we're able to do now versus remember like when you and i were in high school and had our little like Motorola razors and you know texting on the number pad was it like imagine going back to that when we have such access to worlds through our phones through social media like could we go back to that we get people living on social media where they and the problem with social media is like if I go to a party and I start yelling about some 
freak conspiracy theory about talking about like, oh man, did you know that everybody's actually a lizard person and all that kind of stuff? You're going to come up to me and be like, Ryan, right. shut up. And 10 other people are going to be like, you're wrong. Please be quiet and go sit down. But on social media, I can find 10 other people mm-hmm. who think that, you know, everybody in power is a lizard person. And all of a sudden I've confirmed my views. Yes. And then we go find other, um, you know, breadcrumbs that they look like they're clues pointing to the yes. right direction. QAnon. They look like clues pointing the right way, but oh it's it's just yeah. the, the tree just fell. That's all that is. Is it might look like it's a clue pointing towards mm-hmm. the White House, but like, no, the leaf just pointed that direction based on randomness. Um, that's all this world is. Absolutely, and like the, the the speculating and the mythologizing that people participate in to just like paint those pictures. That's like what the mental mm-hmm. acrobatics. It's like what. And so you have, like, you have to, under- like, one part of this work, too, is, like, you have to understand people's investments in fantasy. Like, why do people believe things that are contrary to either, like, their lived experience or, it's arrogant to say actual conditions, but how do people, like, think Trump won legitimately or, like, he was going to, through another insurrection on March 4th, like, become president again? Like, I don't, I don't know. And obviously there's so many examples of just like odd conspiracy theories and the like, but what is that investment? You really, why do people, yeah, I think we were talking about it before too. It's like, if something can be easily explained for someone, if things can make sense for people, that's all they kind of want. They just want to understand. Maybe that's it. I don't know. We don't want to think that this just, you know, the current pandemic just happened. We don't want to think that 9-11 just, you know, that there were some signs pointing towards it, but it just happened. But more oftentimes than not, that's what happened. It's just, I feel like people need a reason. Um, you get that with anything, whatever people turn to for their belief, they need a reason for things to happen. When nine times out of 10, mm-hmm. shit just happened. Um, that's it. And like, and we explain yeah. after the fact, yeah. right? Like we try our best. That being said, don't get me wrong. I love a good conspiracy theory. I don't believe all of them, but like, man, they make for some yeah. good TV. Aliens has been my fascination, especially mm-hmm. this past year when like that New York Times article came out there or whatever, of like releasing the footage of those two objects that like military planes captured. And then there was the like, not Ripley's Believe It or Not, but there was like a new version of that on Netflix that was like deep diving into this case of alien touchdown that affected this entire town. And like going down those rabbit holes, are, I, I'm obsessed with it. I love it. And you, you suspend disbelief and you're trying to like, connect your own dots as you're going through it but like i don't it's just it's, it's a world of fantasy but also fact and navigating between it is so hard it's I love it's that. like sasquatch too the, they offer that kind of stuff yeah, it's, it's so cool to think about but like yeah anyway um what is it like getting your phd i know you referenced to it a couple times but you said it's uh it's a little busy it's definitely like it has it's a mix of good and bad but a lot of bad and <laughs> not bad. And like, it just, you have to learn a lot. Like one of the things, one of the conditions is precarity. You are not, especially like in the Canadian context in the U S context, especially it's not necessarily the same in other countries. Like you can go to Norway, you have free tuition and you'll get paid like a handsome salary to be a graduate student. Um, but here I don't mind talking about money, like for myself personally, I'm not goading anyone. I'm just rather, you know, trying to find out anyone's, financial situation but in terms of like contesting power and trying to do coalition building like i don't mind talking about what the university pays me so i essentially get like a ten thousand dollar graduate award every year as sort of a base scholarship 
and then a base TA ship where I work as a TA, obviously, for another $10,000. And that gets separated uh, monthly payments, basically, or bi-monthly even sometimes. Um, oh, yep. Sorry, can yep. you hear me? Okay, Good. I think I might have just turned. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, and then from then you're expected, like, then you go into debt. Like, you have to pay seven $7,500 worth of tuition. So the scholarship you got practically immediately just goes to what you have to pay. And then you go into debt through OSAP. And then some people work. Like, I've always had a kind of odd job on the side to help sustain the direct living expenses. So, like, it's very expensive. And there's a lot of uncertainty around what your funding will look like year to year. Unless you're lucky or fortunate or skillful enough, whatever you might you know, see that as, as getting like a shirk or a, a national scholarship that pays you like, not amazingly, but a decent enough wage throughout your time that you'll feel a little more safe. Um, but more than that too, like at the end of it, the job market sucks for academics now. Like the university is just becoming this quick little thing that wants quick contracts. You know, they don't want to hire tenure track profs. They want to lock you into these little teaching contracts where you can get paid a fraction of it, um, but you can never really get out of it. And so like precariousness is a very like animating factor, but I say it's good because like I have arguably experienced some of my most significant growth, like doing it. I've met some of the best people of my life, like with their ideas, with their politics, with how much they care about community, with how much they do people. I didn't, I don't think I would have been exposed to like otherwise at the same time, I've met some of the worst people. Like, don't get me wrong. There's, I think you're going to find that everywhere. Um, but it's like my critical thinking, like, not sword, but like really sharpened as in my time as a grad student, my um, politics, my ability to like feel principled and have a perspective, like all that really shaped up in my time here. So like for that reason, it's awesome. But um, yeah, no, it's definitely precarious. Another like a really nice thing, depending on the type of work you do, like again, my work is very theoretical. So I'm not doing this big, big data project where I'm like interviewing a hundred people or doing a huge program analysis of like a million police phone calls. Like I'm just writing my little quiet theoretical contribution. Um, so in that, right, like you get to structure your days, you get to decide how that eight to four, nine to five, 10 to 12, like whatever you want it to look like you can do. And that is double edged. Like if you're disciplined and a self starter, great, you're laughing. But if you are generous with yourself, like me, sometimes like it can be really hard to be motivated. You're like, Oh, what's another day of playing destiny for like 20 hours? <laughs> Who cares? It could be like that. But yeah, so it's like, it's a mix of good and bad. Um, I wouldn't, I don't regret it. I don't know what's on the other end of it for me, which is like an interesting thing, but it's still, yeah, I don't regret it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have changed it. That's good to hear. And I, I definitely feel you with the, the self-starter. I think that's something a lot of people get, especially working from home now, is it's very easy to just log in and do the, the bare minimum, let things pile up because future you is going to take care of it. But uh, mm -hmm. God, I hate future you. Future you also hate yeah. past me. I was going to say, I was going to say past me is the worst yeah. person ever and future me is the best. Future me is going to take care of all my yeah. problems and past me is the That's reason good. for them. Just like the dishes. <laughs> past <laughs> me's fault that the dishes are there. That's yeah. profound, man. Past me's fault yeah. that the dishes are there. Future yeah, me is going to take care good. of it so I can, I can forget about it. <laughs> I just want an outside person constantly, like a disembodied voice just to keep me on track. That'll be the, the next <laughs> upgrade to Siri and Google. Tasks is 
That was was that movie with Joaquin Phoenix, like her or whatever? Where he falls in love with the phone. Yeah, essentially. But like it's also kind of black mirror-y, but like how yeah, how that stuff will be like the next phase of like a literal sort of assistant. I mean you have that in Alexa anyway. You have that. Yeah. that was, not to say that out loud in case there's one in your shot of you, sorry. <laughs> yeah, as I'm speaking, laying on a <laughs> but, there's yeah. a pickle in the room, there's some talking on an iPhone. Yeah, it's it's picking me up one way or the other. Oh, it's and yeah, and that's like so. That's why you have me these STS scholars to kind of take a step back or pause and say, okay, like what are the consequences for this, or like is this good, is this bad? Like, yeah, that's yeah. If I can offer some <laughs> clarifying <laughs> to what I do all this time after, that we would look at these questions, you know, the relationship to technology and yeah, for sure, the reliance on technology at this point. Yeah, it's scary. I would even call it a relationship. Oh, it's very. It's it's really taken off, and it's wild how much like so an argument that I craft in in the dissertation talking about blood, and this Creva report is essentially like the state crafts us as these sanguine figures, and I use that I'm so metaphorical, and I try to use this term like in a double edge sanguine referring to blood, but sanguine is also like this painfully optimistic in the face of high horrors, and like that is in a sense who we are, like we abstract away. You know, we can go to the grocery store and see the clean cut cow or chicken or whatever and pick it up put it in our basket and buy it and not worry about the other questions that came into putting that food on the table. And like that goes as far as, yeah, the laptop in front of me, the phone beside me, the TV monitor to my right, all of these things kind of get put away from our view so that we don't have to hold them quite seriously or we have to, we don't have to regard the actual story of this device and like the exploited labor or the literal blood that runs in you know the silicon mm-hmm. and all this stuff like i don't know yeah that's part of it but i don't want to be doom and gloom sorry i'm trying to move away from that <laughs> not trying to be too but uh yeah it's deep no, it's, and it does make sense though. it's i mean it's you great. just see the packaging you don't have to worry mm-hmm. about the you know the cow that is your steak at this point you don't have to worry about the uh, rainforest got cut down in order for them to grow that cow um, and all that fun stuff. But on a more, no, oh, sorry, go ahead. Saw, yeah. No, I mean we, we we got it. Like we got there. I was gonna give another point, but like I was gonna yeah. say on a more positive point, uh, we're both thespians. I think you more so than me because mine was school. So tell me about your experience playing the. I think the way to put it is the titular role of Beauty and the Beast. I think I pronounced oh that God. correctly. If you were yeah. going to say it, I was going to say it. If you were going to say it, I was going to say it. The titular Favorite word ever. Role. Hello. It was a... Oh, I love it. I'm like, the ego maniac <laughs> in me loves it so much, too. It's like, yeah, not just a role, <laughs> but the titular role. It's, um, oh, man. It was, like, one of the best experiences of my life. And I know that's, like, so dramatic. But uh, I look back on it genuinely. It's, like, maybe one of the last times... I experienced genuine joy because like the show went on in January, 2020. And then three months later, like we had shut down. And so I was like riding that high and then it's like, Oh God, <laughs> yeah, everything is bleak. Um, but it was incredible. Like just from doing it, like when I auditioned originally, I thought I'd be going for Gaston just because like, Oh, I'm arrogant, tall, kind of big. Like that's a role I could sort of maybe fit into well. 
And then after the audition, thinking it kind of went well and knowing that they had me reading more for the beast than anything else. I remember also too, like going on this date, like that same night with this person who was like, just so incredibly attractive. And like this cliche of nine of like, this is going to be my year of yes. <laughs> like this eat, pray, love perspective. But I was so happy though. Like two days later, I'm with my good friend, Sylvia. She's uh, there at my place and we're just like drinking some wine. And it's 9.30, 10 p.m. I get this phone call. And it's like this cliche moment of, these group of people on the other end they're so excitedly they're like you got it you got the beast and i'm like <laughs> what looking at sylvia like what the hell like this is insane um saying yes to it and then the process like it was i know it's very cliche to think like any community theater type production is always the best and always like the most incredible but it really it really was a lightning in the bottle moment like every role was just so good every person was so good at their character and like the best part of it was that throughout the entire process like we rehearsed it's a long ass play it's a full broadway production that we did we had intense costumes like i was the beast with a big blue fancy suit bell had the big gold gown um we had the live band like it was a really good production but uh everyone was just so unabashedly themselves and like you might know this in your work as an actor one of the things you have to do is like shed your embarrassment right like you can't mm -hmm. judge yourself you have to shed the shame and so with these people who have been doing it for so long like they're so good at it you learn so much but because no one's embarrassed or thinking they're being ridiculous or what have you it's just like so much so much joy is had so much there's so much beauty i don't know what did you what did you do like what um i did I feel like I'm not. Asking, no, that's I'm not perfectly fine. Questions. I'm okay. You're the you're the one you're the the one that people haven't heard for the past couple episodes. So it's good to get other voices. Um, I did Macbeth. We did so. I did in school, and by school I mean university. I did a full year of uh, drama studies. I I did it thinking I'd take half of it and just drop the other half because I really only needed credits to graduate. Um, I had finished all my finance stuff. Uh, and I was finishing it up, and I'm like, I need something like simple because I had my version of the, to get honors. I guess you have to you have to write um, your thesis kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I, pain I, that yeah. I had that going on the summer before, and then I had all my fourth year <laughs> classes in finance, and I had a couple of them, and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna take some easy classes, so I don't have to worry about them, but I can get the credits for it. So I took stuff like I took Spanish for a full year. I ended up switching it to something else and take the second half of Spanish because I actually was having fun with it. Um, I cannot speak Spanish now. Right. And then I nice. took drama. I took the first half of drama and the second half, thinking that I'll just drop out of the second half and just take another language. Maybe I'll do French because I know French already like an easy W. Um, but I liked it, so I stayed right. in it. And the second and the second half of it, we were putting on a play, and we had to do like little skits kind of thing. I think it was, I think it was like five ten minutes. It wasn't long, but um, she essentially divided us all yeah. up into teams, teams, uh, groups of of people. So it was me and. And my my uh, my partner were to kind of get this whole Macbeth thing ready, just the two of us get the play ready, and then there was a another yeah. course that was doing the um, architectural point of view of the dra of drama. So they're going to get the scene mm -hmm. and, the, and the costumes and all that ready. That we worked with them, and it was fun. But I played Macbeth, and it was pretty cool. So but it was supposed to be Macbeth set in like the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties Mad Men, and. Uh, at a at a newspaper yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> oh my god! Um, so good. It was a lot of fun. We had the fake blood yeah. too. The last totally. the last uh, the last time mm -hmm. that we went through it, oh um, I went pretty hard with the fake blood on my face and in my hair, and uh, I got all over my white shirt. So <laughs> I was in the garbage. It was a decent white shirt that I a uh, white dress shirt that I can no longer wear because it looks like I always murdered somebody. Um, but yeah, it was fun. It was, of course, it was really fun. Just like, oh my god. 
it's did yeah. you did you go to Carlton? Yeah. As you're talking, oh my, I think we literally took this. It was her name Sylvie. She was blonde. Sarah. Like she was. I think it was Sarah um, McVie. She, was it Sarah? Yeah, she's on. Uh, yeah, she's actually. McVie. Yeah. I was gonna say she's, she's on, on working, working moms. moms. Yeah. So I I <laughs> took drama oh thinking God. that I was gonna use it to be able to better speak in front of people, um, in business, so that if I ever had to get up and do a presentation in front of a bunch of people, I'd be able to nail it, which it did help me with. But I actually just really yeah. liked it. So she actually contacted oh. me later, a couple of years later, and I uh, was like, hey, do you mind like writing a review? Because she, I guess she moved to Toronto to do working mom stuff. And on the side, she was teaching acting, but she wanted to market it to business people in Toronto yeah. as well to kind of get them out of their out of their shell and be able to speak. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll just write you a quick review on, on how it helped yeah. me kind of, um, again, be able to stand up in front of a bunch of people wearing suits that I don't know who are judging me and, you know, elevator pitch something. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Oh my god, that's amazing! Yeah, but like, oh, I found with that course too. Like, my my intent was the same. I thought, like, hey, at the end of my degree, it looks like it might be a little easier. It ended up being one of the most like labor intensive in terms of you had to meet your group like x amount of hours a week. You had to do these little writing reflections. You had to do da da. It ended up being more work than I thought. Yeah, like, god damn, this is not the bird course I was hoping it would be. But it was amazing. I loved it. And I remember when I saw her in Working Moms the first time, I died. She's so funny. Like, oh, yeah. And I I love that you related to, to like, I don't know, there's practical skills that come from being able to not just act, but like what goes into acting to know, you know, what makes a scene, what makes something believable, what makes a believable emotion, understanding how someone carries himself. Like there's, there's practical knowledge there too. And even getting, like you said, getting in your comfort zone. I think one of the first, classes she gets you lay down on the floor and just she just said be fire you're like what and i'm coming from business i'm like what kind of class is this i'm laying on the ground there's once we did like a meditation where i fell asleep and she kind of nudged me with her foot to wake me back up but you're laying on the ground trying to like be fire and yeah just getting over that hurdle um it's been great because like you can basically after you've sat in front of a group of you know 30 of your peers being fire whatever that means uh you can go into a room where you don't know anybody. You should be like, fuck, I'm going to talk like, to them. Yeah. Exactly. That's, it's such a skill to like, yeah, it's, it's an, it's an exercise in ego. It's an exercise in like shrinking yourself a bit and seeing like, Oh, we're all making it up as we go along, but like definitely on, on a similar path here. I don't know. I love it. Like, I do think so we're all faking it till, till we like, figure out what's happening. No matter what age you are, I think you're faking it. Um, nobody knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing, but it's, it's being, it's being able to be yourself and be true to That's yourself, true. right? Let, let yes. the person inside come out. Totally. So you're not like yeah. stuck in like a boundary of like, mm-hmm. this is Ryan. He goes to the gym and he plays hockey. Therefore he looks like X, Y, and Z and he must do X, Y, and Z. Like, no, I can yes. be who I want. Exactly. You can do anything. You can like, you have multiple interests. You have an interest that sound contradict or contrary. And like, absolutely. No. We're definitely speaking the same language. Long story short, though, you enjoy being the beast and being the beast. (laughs) Full circle. Oh, I I loved it so much. Like, just to to give you a quick little anecdote, like, at the very, so we did 10 shows, and there was two two two-show days, which, like, uh, amongst the biz, it's very intense. Like, two-show days, guys. We got it. We got it. It is exhausting. And, like, with the beast, there was, like, some acrobatic work. There was dancing. There was more, like, I'm not saying it was the most rigorous exercise I've ever done, but, like, certainly in practicing and putting it together, it's a lot. And then to do two show days, and then you're also singing and acting and trying to, like, keep in time. Like, it's demanding, for sure. Um, 
but so one of the numbers that I had to sing was like, I don't know if you call it the 11 o'clock number, but like it's the one that is the pre-finale, for the finale for, before the intermission. And like Wicked, it's defying gravity. And Beauty and the Beast, the Beast sings, If I Can't Love Her. And it's not so, it's like, it sounds beautiful, but if you're a baritone and have a good enough range, like it's not impossible. But I knew that I wasn't a trained singer. I was just a musician and had kind of a good voice. So I did the work to like definitely make it well shaped excuse me my goodness oh god it's my problem when i talk i get so burpy i don't know if other people have this problem it's so weird like don't know how to breathe i don't know anyway so like there was this one the guy who played cogsworth his name was jacob he was so freaking talented he was so funny he's so sweet um but he was also an incredible singer who like uh does acapella groups and all this sort of stuff so at the end of every if i can't love her i'd always ask him like jacob like please tell it to me straight like how did i do and he would always, he's like, man, it was completely fine. I'm like, no, I need, I need the particulars. He's like, okay, well, you could have sustained this better. This was a little pitchy. You could have like been a little more emotional there. And I always loved it. So the last show, I'm really giving a lot of time. That's fine. For no reason. <laughs> we always had this uh, ritual of doing like a pre-show circle. And I remember the last day was a two-show day and I couldn't even contain myself. Like I was going to give like my big emotionally overwrought speech at the end, but like I knew I would bust at the seams if I didn't. <laughs> at least let this beautiful group of people know like how much the experience meant to me. So during the show circle, I'm telling them whatever, like, you know, a year before it was a really dark time for me. And just essentially I was so happy that I did this and how much they, how much joy they brought to me. And like, we all cried <laughs> and all had a moment. And so at the end of the, if I can't love her song, um, Jacob, he wasn't usually right in the wings. He was usually just like in the hall or the green room. He was right there waiting for me. And he essentially, I didn't realize it at the time, but he was like escorting me to the green room. Um, and I guess a very important detail is like in the green room, you'd have a monitor with a live feed of the show, just so you knew like your cues and when to come on. Um, not incredible quality, but just like if you had a 20 minute break, you didn't have to be in the wings, you can go in the green room. So they saw, like they would always listen to the song. So anyway, Jacob, he pulls me into the green room and then everybody is along the walls giving a standing ovation and like they're all in tears. And then I burst into tears and I'm just like, <laughs> we're all a puddle. And it just felt so like affirmative. It's felt so supportive. And like those uplifting feelings, I've never felt anywhere else. Like it was, it was in theater. It was with these people. Um, I, get, I get emotional just like reflecting on the experience. Honestly, it was, it was nothing like I've ever done. I was so happy. Not for, I'm really beating it down here. <laughs> like I've, I was so happy to do it. It was, I do it again. Like I've done like um, performance and acting since then. Like I, I call myself an actor now, <laughs> which you know, I wouldn't have done before, certainly. But uh, yeah, I you did like that. a Zoom call recently, so right? Yeah, like, so there's a theatrical company here called Blue Canoe. Um, they've been doing these Zoom cabarets. So, like, they're not getting the full rights to a show, but they'll just do select songs. So we did Les Mis. I played Javert in a couple song, a couple numbers, and I did chorus stuff. Uh, the most recent one was, like, a Wizard of Oz slash Wicked type one, which was so much fun. I've done, like, little Valentine's Day cabarets. Like, this was last year. I sang at an event. Like, I performed in Toronto. I did some acting there. It's, it's cool. I love it. Like, I would, in a heartbeat, drop the PhD stuff if Hollywood, like, ever came a-knocking. But I think it's it's uh, Vancouver and <laughs> Toronto. It's always... Here in Canada. So I think it's Vancouver, Toronto. Yeah. Like, there's the odd show that happens, and the, the odd movie gets filmed in Ottawa when they need, like, a small town feel or something like that. I, 
Yeah, Ottawa too. Stratford, I guess, if you're looking for like the stage-based stuff, but I'm nowhere near my caliber. I'm not. <laughs> that is. So, what books have you read recently? Anything that you suggest? I'm sure you've read a lot recently. Oh my god! Like all you do in grad school is reading. <laughs> and if you're not, you got shamed into it. I mean, right now, I'm reading. Uh, the, not that I, I recommend them totally, but like one is the Cultural Politics of Emotion um, by Sarah Ahmed, and she's kind of just talking about a lot, but how we tend to think of emotions as like individualized and coming from within, and she's observing how they're wrapped up in a lot of other processes, and they're collective and they swirl. It's really beautiful. Um, but like things that I'd recommend to anyone, like, especially if people are interested in what kind of STS creative stuff does, there's this book called, um, the edge of the sky. It's by Roberto Trotta. It's called the edge of the sky. All you need to know about the, all there is, and it's almost like a kid's book. He's a Nobel, is he a Nobel laureate? No, he's an astrophysicist who wanted to talk about like the birth of the universe up until now using the thousand most common words in the English language. So like it ends up being this incredibly like accessible, but poetic and almost childlike thing to talk about something so complicated and it's beautiful. Like that stuff I love. So that one, uh, yeah, it literally looks like a kid's book cause it's so small. Um, but it's really cool. But how so about you? I'm still you working my way through a promised land by Barack Obama. Um, it's a brick. Like, uh, I think I just got into the 600s in terms of page number. Yeah. 150 Ooh. pages left to go. Oh God. Like, the, break, break it up into, like, separate volumes or something. I don't know. There's no, like, a dense book. If it's a textbook. I'm not going to say the worst part about it, but I think at the beginning, he mentions how this is the first of two. So he did break it up. Because. Good Lord. Imagine thinking, like, <laughs> I have 1,800 pages yeah. worth of stuff to say. It's a lot. And to, you need to listen to me. I mean, like, the first little bit goes on about his, his early career and all that kind of stuff. Eventually, he gets into being president. And you're not even – you're I'm in the – essentially the the um, 2008 econ- economic crisis. And he's coming towards kind of like the last 200 pages. Mm-hmm. And, like, man, he's got so much more crap that happened in the next – let alone the, you know, 2016 election that I think he's going to talk about at the end of the next book. But – he knows what he's talking about. I'm a huge policy wonk. Um, at at work, they make fun of me because yeah. I was like, uh, "Well, according to the policy, if you interpret it like this, then like Ryan, why?" And I'm like, "Because you can't." Like for me, it go, like the policy sets the rules, like the <laughs> the edges of the boundary where we're allowed to play. But also, I just I like how like a little bit of policy here and there can like change how how a government works or how um, it interacts with stuff and oh, how it can benefit sure. people. Like you see some. Be- Go ahead. Well, you see, and yeah, sorry, don't go ahead. Well, in the states, very like in little Senate bills, like those little add-ons that they think like this is just an amendment, mm-hmm. but it's a huge tax wealth or like whatever a tax cut for a court. Like how a little huge policy decision could be implemented as a one-line statement in like yeah oh, a bill. It's definitely, crazy. and it's Absolutely it's uh, it's one of those things that like personally, I I don't identify as necessarily, especially in Canada. I think we're moving more and more towards the edges. You've got one, the conservatives on the right, who are just in a race with nobody to the far right. You've got the liberals and the NDP in a race with themselves <laughs> to the left. And they keep trying to basically outmaneuver each other. And I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty much dead center, in my opinion, maybe a little left. But mm. uh, like mm. just the little, the little policy things and the, the bigger impacts of it, like the recent gun bill that came out where they want to ban all these guns. And 
the thing is, it's legal gun owners, and the legal gun owners in Canada aren't ever going to be the problem. They don't want to tackle the awkward issue that we have a ton of illegal firearms coming across the border. Like, where do you think these criminals get their guns from? The criminals aren't walking up to Cabela's and going through all the paperwork and going through the the first weekend course to get the restricted firearm, their second weekend course to get their unrestricted firearm, and then going into Cabela's and buying the Magnum that they only have five bullets in. It's coming across the border. Like, I was thinking, and, and yeah, well, that's in my mind too. It's like just to yeah. end up getting a rifle or like a very long, I imagine, it's like colonizing type bayonetta thing. This is yeah. what you can and they're reducing it. I'm, I'm talking to you, you know, my, uh, you know, Jerry, he's a RCMP officer and he's a bit further on, on the right edge of things, but you're in Canada and you can't yeah, really course, say no firearms ever because I could be up hiking in the hills where I live currently. I'm up at a cottage, I'm up at the in laws' cottage, and we could be out hiking. We don't have any firearms, but we could be up hiking in the hills and run into a, a jag, not a jaguar, a cougar. Or we could run into a bear just because that's the nature mm-hmm. of the beast of North America. There's tons of these big animals. You need uh, something to defend yourself from that. These are the critters. That's that's the thing. Like, there are critters that live here. And some of them, yeah. if you're treading on their territory, they can respond in kind. Like, for it's, sure. Uh, no, it's definitely, like, that safety fear stuff. Like, I, I hear that. The amount Especially of laws around it. doing it, too. But, like, the little policy things, like, I know if you have a if you have a rifle, you have to let the police know when you're taking it from point A to point B. So if you get pulled over and found in the car, that you've got a record that you had it. But all even the little policy things, like you know, okay. um, trying to trying to filter money that the taxpayers use to buy stuff towards certain at-risk groups, let's say, um, just the little decisions in, in how they word something in the policy has major impacts on some of these communities where you can. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Sorry, I can go on. A tangent about policy and stuff like that, but even yeah, you look no, at the, man, the like economics around like the green industries, like green power is, I believe, it recently in 2020, mm-hmm. green power is now the cheapest form of fuel. And you've got, yeah, yeah wind based, especially, especially in Canada, you've got these advocates yeah. and you've got nuclear power, which is not nuclear power from 10 years ago, it's not nuclear power from five years ago, it's, it's very yeah, well, it's, it's, it's great. You've new. got yeah. very clean, yeah. comparatively, very clean nuclear burning, but you've got people on both sides saying, well, I don't want nuclear power because of the explosive, keep, like the, the boom factor, essentially. Yeah. But it's not that. It's not, that's not yeah, the Yeah, the amount, even is, to have right? what we saw in Japan with the meltdown, that had to go through, I think, six or seven different levels of human error before it ever got to that point. Um, mm-hmm. But you've got policy saying that, you know, maybe right. we're not going to build these things for whatever reasons and we're just going to stick to 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 burning stuff to get electricity well i find that's not to be a crazy commie that i am but like that's where you definitely see how corporatism plays mm-hmm. such a heavy part in our politics like they hijack democracy in the sense that you've got corporate lobbyists you got big oil who are saying nope we still have this and we need this and it, it holds people and they use logics of like yeah of course labor and jobs and you're ruining jobs if you're to stifle this market and it's like yeah they've they've got their hand quite deep in how we think about energy it reminds you of even the future tobacco from a while ago it's frustrating but i read uh, i read a stat yeah. i think it was oh so in, in ottawa i don't know about the rest of the country and all that but there's i mean the rest of the country is having a housing issue which is a whole other thing that a little tweaks in policy can really go a long way but you've got yeah for example totally. being able to if you can own country in order to own property in Canada, we have to either, you have to either be Canadian, a permanent resident, or be from a country that we can own property in. I think that would go a long way. But um, mm. that's beside the point. The, mm. uh, the, what was, yeah. what was I going to say? I totally blanked. 
Oh, no. Well, little little policy things having huge the, the uh, corporate interests. I think in the city of Ottawa, I think it's something. I think I read a stat that the most that a corporation can give to a um, candidate is sixteen hundred dollars, and it equates to about eighty thousand dollars that they can give to candidates. But that makes up most of I think what the candidates can will raise is from these real estate companies whose job it is is to, mm. you know, have that right. suburban spread, the suburban sprawl. You want to have a new house, new house, new house. Yeah. Okay, get rid of that wetland. Let's put houses in there, and who ends up okaying it is the people who yeah. know that the funding's coming from these people that need the, the land it's a vicious cycle if you get money out of politics don't know how it's but ridiculous. man like and oh the culture of land i mean canada is built on that the story of canada yep. starts with displacement and land grabbing and you know it's it's the politics of land my goodness certainly relevant now and like Angela Davis says the movement of our time is mm -hmm. going to be the refugee movement. I mean, because of the climate crisis and we're seeing it now, I mean, obviously with conflict in Syria, the amount of refugees that created, but with also climate degradation, I think we're up to like 50 million refugees because of that alone. And it's like, this is just going to be, yeah, unless we change our thinking or at least move away from this more like, you know, we have to claw mm -hmm. at each other and we have to like, yeah, I have uh, for tons sure. of, of thinking along this stuff, but yeah, we, we definitely have to, I don't know, they, like I said, with the time of the extinction stuff, like there is an, there's an urgency, there's an immediateness, like LOL, if you think that cities are not going to be underwater in our lifetime, like coastal uh, floods is locked in, like that stuff, no matter what we do now is inevitable and like how that displaces people will be. I don't know how we address it will be quite a question. You're even seeing with COVID how rich elite people are like trying to jump the queue or like get a vaccine in uh, areas where it was given to like vulnerable populations. And you know, the fear is like that. If you're moneyed, if you're stationed, if you're that, you'll survive. And if you're mm -hmm. not, like, good luck. You're seeing the divide. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. My goal the is divide to between uh, what was once yeah. the middle class and the upper class is getting bigger and bigger because they're kind of compressing everything down wages aren't going oh, up God, you know totally. prices everything are going up and then the politicians nope. turn and say well look at our gdp is doing great like well yeah it's because real estate prices are involved in there and as long as real estate prices yeah, go up yeah. Yeah. Know, that's not a metric for you know, dignity something. yeah exactly yeah. Like, i think there is a replacement someone came up with um yeah. to replace gdp that includes stuff like you know quality of life and all that kind of stuff but yeah it's not uh, right it's, it's not going on. But again, yeah. little tweaks in policy go a good distance in terms of uh, helping people out. Anyway, I won't take up too much more of your time. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah. If anybody is interested, yeah. thank you. It was kind of it was kind of nice. It didn't feel like it was like an hour and a half. No, you have a way of. I just hey, I probably talked way too much. I'm sorry. I can really run on, but like, no, you have a way to just pull things out of people. I appreciate it. That's what Leah said when she when she convinced me to to do this was uh, was like you can talk to people who don't agree with you, and at the end of the day, you guys are still drinking a beer, still you know discussing whatever, but uh, mm -hmm. you haven't thrown it at each other. Yet. I appreciate that. Um, but for people who are looking, people who are looking for more information about your field of study. Let's say. Usually, I'd ask if you have a if you have a business, you're yes. on Instagram where you talk about this stuff. But if your field of study in general, um, until you put out your book, <laughs> your field of study in general, where can they go? Mm -hmm. It's hard. Like this stuff exists everywhere. Like, oh god, what what do I want to plug? If I can give one, uh, 
Mm, like the biggest name for me is Donna Haraway. Like if you're looking for a quick little, like who is the author that has most inspired me? Uh, it's her. And it's, she's not without a problem. She speaks and writes in this way that is so figurative and metaphorical that like you don't always know. I find like I've spent what feels like thousands of hours pouring over her words. Um, but she really conceptualizes things in a way that like show this co-play between myth and tool that show how like the picture is always changing, but you can look at it in a complex way. Like she's beautiful. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you want to check out the lecture series that Tyler helps organize, you can go check out empoweringothersseries.eventbrite.com. They've got two lectures going on this month that you can sign up for. Thank you for listening. And if you have the time, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcast. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, wherever you get your podcasts. And send me a message via Anchor or Instagram and let me know what you think about the podcast and if you have any ideas for future topics or future guests on the show. I hope you have a great week. Yeah.